In late March, I was notified by the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles, that my birthday was approaching and I needed to renew my driver's license. So I went online, filled out the necessary paperwork, but desiring to have one of those new real ID driver's license, I wanted to make sure that I'd done everything right so I, uh, and filled everything out properly, so I went to the Department of Motor Vehicles uh, to uh, finish things out. Well, this new real ID driver's license allows people to domestically fly without having to bring your passport along with you. And starting May 3rd, 2023, there will be no commercial flights in America for anybody if you don't bring a passport or have this real ID driver's license with you. Well, the mistake I made is I didn't read the fine print on the application which stated that when you showed up at the local DMV, that you would need two forms of identification. You would need your passport and current driver's license, or your birth certificate and current driver's license, or your passport and your birth certificate. But you needed two forms of identification. So being a person who does not enjoy generally going to the DMV anyway, in fact, I think I would probably rather sign up for a root canal at my dentist with no Novocaine then stand in line there, and then only to be told that I needed two forms of ID so I would get to make another special trip to the DMV, uh, but it was all my own fault. Like each of you, I have a physical birth certificate, an actual original paper copy that states that I was born in Hibbing, Minnesota, in St. Louis County on May 4th, 1960, to Emil Laverne and Carol Jean Nelson. And our birth certificates declare that we, in fact, have been born. They state the hospital that we were born at, the city we were born in, the uh, county and state, and at the time we were born, and to whom we were born. And the birth certificate also tells us that when we joined the human race, we were so many inches long, we weighed such and such, and then there's a tiny baby's footprint that links us to that information forever. And the two most powerful things listed on the birth certificate outside of our own personal name are the names of our parents, which say a lot about how we got here and in physical terms, what we will be like. From a physical perspective, we don't have a choice in the matter. Our aptitudes, our appearance, our talents, our stature, our eye color, our hair color, etc., are the direct results of our parents' DNA, the combination of our parents' genes. And this is why, biologically speaking, there is a strong tendency for us to grow up and look like, be like, or even act like our moms and our dads. Now, say that to the average teenager in this country, and it will often enlist an immediate response that, I'm nothing like my mom, or nothing like my dad, or I don't want to be anything like them. And then what happens is your family attends that year a family reunion with some great aunts and great uncles and some second and third cousins who are older and they see your teenager and they say, oh, I can't believe how much you look like your mother or I can't believe how much you look like your father or you sound just like your father did when he was your age. Such proclamations are usually not what teenagers want to hear, though they usually nod uh, politely. However, by the time we become parents ourselves, it's usually a settled fact. 
We are our parents. We hear ourselves saying the same things that our parents used to say to us. Often we end up sharing our parents' worldviews, political stances, patterns of spending, physical gestures, and even attire. And here's the big one. Here's the clincher. Somewhere along the way, it becomes okay for us even to wear dress socks. And might I add, even the wrong colored dress socks with tennis shoes and shorts, just like dad used to. You know, we're mortified as a teenager. I'll go out in public, dad, like that. And somewhere along the way, we get to that point where we don't care either. And we just go and do it. You know, this journey to becoming like mom and dad doesn't just come about as a result of our genetic makeup. It also happens from the earliest moments of life and throughout our ch childhoods, from modeling what we saw them do. Now, modeling is what psychologists and sociologists like to refer to as environmental conditioning, the nurture component of our upbringing. There is genetics, there's nature, and then there is nurture. There's the modeling that goes on in our homes. And modeling does mold us. Our characteristics, our mannerisms, our reactions, and even our patterns of behavior in our earthly parents, and might I add, since we're talking about fathers in this sermon series, our earthly fathers often find their way into our lives. But here's the deal. As we talked about in last week's sermon, if you are a Christian, then you have been born twice. You've been born again. So now you have a new father to resemble. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. We're now in a new family with a new father who bestows upon us unconditional love. As Pastor Kerry shared with us this morning from 1 John 3, 1, see what great love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Since we are now part of a new family with new values, we now have new responsibilities. Our Christian calling then is to be imitators of God. And please know that being an imitator is significant. In fact, in our English language, it means more than just being a follower. It means that we need to be committed enough to our faith to imitate God, to act like God does, to do what God does. Now I want to take a few moments here and highlight the, in the context of uh, Ephesians chapter 5 so that we understand, and actually the whole book, so we don't take these verses out of context and somehow create a sort of pretext here. The book of Ephesians shifts from the first three chapters, which are chapters that tell us about Christian orthodoxy. They tell us about what we should believe as doctrine. And then the last three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, then become how these beliefs and principles are to be put into practice, the orthodox, uh, orthopraxy. So the first part is orthodoxy. The second part here is orthopraxy. And chapter 4, verse 1 says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And that Greek word there, live, is the Greek word peripateo. It actually means to walk. 
You know, so as you walk through life in your journey, do it in such a way that, that it's faithful to the calling that God has placed upon your life when he called you into his kingdom. So we see some examples of that right now in chapter 4, verse 17 through 25. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life. You know, that's not the way you were called to walk. You, not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 25 there. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbors, for we are all members of one body. Then we pick it up in verse 29. Do not let any wholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Then we come to verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of of malice. And I want you to understand that brawling there isn't referring to fisticuffs and people duking it out. It's talking about shouting matches, which actually now tend to happen in our culture a lot on social media sites. Do you know of any Christian families out there uh, and individuals within the Christian families who don't even talk to each other anymore? Do you know any Christians and their families who don't talk to their neighbors or toward their former friends? Or even to fellow Christians because of political differences? We've had two families leave our church in the last two months over politics. They love our church, but they don't like the direction of our denomination, at least from their perspective, politically. Well, let me ask you this question. Do you know of anybody who's leaving politics for the church? Can you name that person? Who do you know in the last year has left their political views for the church of Jesus Christ. And here's another question for you. How many people have you shared your political views with in the last year, in person or online, and sometimes to the point of major disagreements and, har and, 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 and harsh and even almost hostile exchanges, and your dander's gotten up a little bit? Maybe you've even gotten angry. How many times have you done that in the last year? And let me ask you this. How many people have you shared your faith in Jesus Christ with in the last year who are far from Christ? People who desperately need to know the good news of Jesus, who are destined to spend eternity separated from God. And I'm guessing that the political side of this equation in the last year wins hands down. In fact, I would probably say that you have, you have passionately shared your political views with somebody probably 10 times more than you have passionately shared your faith in Christ. In fact, you may have shared your faith in Christ, 
But I can almost guarantee it's not with the passion some people are showing toward politics. Paul would be saying here in Ephesians 4.31, any of that political rhetoric, any of that contentious stuff, that brawling and shouting matches, get rid of it. Verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Our Christian calling is to be imitators of God, not imitators of right-wing politics or left-wing ones, because we have folks in all camps, and I get notes from people, or I hear people's comments, or sometimes even when people are near the end of their life and are talking, and they're talking politics, and it's heartbreaking to me. And I know exactly where people are getting their news from by just listening to people and watching what they write. We're not imitators of right-wing politics or left-wing politics or the libertarian movement or the Green Party platform. We are committed, are we committed enough to our faith to imitate God? To do and say what God would. And that also means how God would say it. You know, the word follow here in the Greek language in verse 1 is the Greek word mimetai, and it's where we get the English word mimic from. To imitate a child shows themselves to be, uh, when a child imitates, they show themselves to be a true child of their parents because they're growing up to be like, they're mimicking their parents. Now, nearly 18 years ago, our son Nathan shot his very first uh, white-tailed buck with a bow and arrow, a little 41-pound compound bow. He was 12 years old, and uh, it was a nine-point buck that dressed out 187 pounds, so it was a pretty nice uh, big buck. The little guys never shot anything under an eight-point buck in his career. But he, uh, he made this shot. It was 17 yards, slightly quartering, very good shot, but a couple inches low and a couple inches back. And so we knew we would have to uh, wait, give it some time before we went and recovered that particular uh, deer. It was also, uh, there was no snow on the ground, and because of only 41 pounds and it lodged in the opposite shoulder, it didn't get a complete pass-through, so there wasn't necessarily the good uh, tracking spore that you would need to have. And it was below zero with wind chill on this particular November 8th, so the ground was frozen. So we went and got one of his best friends, uh, another 12-year-old little guy just like him and his dad to help us in the recovery. And the dad uh, always claimed, he was a good deer tracker, but he always claimed that he could smell deer when they've expired. So periodically, he'd be walking through the woods and, and when we couldn't find any sign, the dad would be sniffing. And I'd look back and there would be the boy, his son, sniffing. And we, we'd, do, we'd go a little farther and when we couldn't find any more sign, you know, the dad would be Sniffing, and I would look back, and there would be the sun. It, it literally became comical. Well, even this week when I was actually prepping this message, I had a similar experience. A grandmother in our church stops by on the way through to tell me about her granddaughter who has started pole vaulting just this year, uh, lives down close to Madison, and uh, she's talked with me in the past about her, how she's been doing, uh, and she's really, really doing well. Then she went down to Pastor Nathan's office and stopped and talked to him and tell him about how her granddaughter is doing. Proud grandma, that's a wonderful thing. And anyway, um, uh, I, I actually didn't know she went into Nathan's office at the time, and I came out of my office to go do some photocopy work, 
And I saw her coming out of Nathan's office, and she was laughing her head off. And she said, he sounds just like you. He said the same things that you said about how well she's doing. You can sure tell he's your son. And I said to her, well, you remember, he did take fourth place in the state in the pole vault. See, children often mimic their parents. And this command to imitate God is absolutely breathtaking to us. Yet, it's a biblical concept. You know, in the Old Testament, the Bible assumes that God's covenant people will take on their, their character from, take their character from him. In Leviticus 19, God commands his people to be holy. Why does God say to the Israelites to be holy? Because who's holy? God is holy. And in the Bible, ethical action is determined by God's character. Jesus taught this very truth in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 uh, and following, it says, 43 to 48, excuse me, it says the following. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. See, it's talking about imitating your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and, and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you not, even, are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet you know, only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And perfect there means complete. The standard of our ethical conduct, of our behavior, is God the Father. It's the Godhead. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's our standard. Luke chapter 6, verse 36 is another example of this. It says, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. We ought to be compassionate toward people because our ethical standard in life is God the Father. We are called to be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Our command here to imitate God is completely legitimate because we are God's children. We should be mimicking our Father. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, the Apostle Paul said this, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. You're the people of God. Your faith in the Lord Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 19. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household. We're part of God's household, part of His family. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And when it says here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, as dearly loved children, I want you to understand that that's the exact same Greek language that was said, that God said about his son at the baptism of Jesus, where it says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It could have been translated, this is my dearly loved son in whom I'm well pleased. Please. That's the language that's being used about us. 
And in John chapter 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, which he prayed just shortly before his crucifixion, he prayed there for uh, unity among believers, the kind of unity that the Godhead possesses. Listen to verses 20 to 23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through uh, their message, which that's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Now listen to this. I in them. That's Jesus in us. And you, God the Father, in me so that they may be bought, brought to complete unity. Do you see what it is? The unity of the Trinity, the unity of the Godhead, is the unity that we can have because Christ Jesus is in us. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus, whom God the Father said, this is my beloved son, my dearly loved son. That's what God is saying to us. As you've loved Jesus, he loves us. We are dearly loved children of God. Now, we've gone to great lengths today to describe how a person takes the characteristics of the family to which he or she belongs. Listen carefully now to Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We're to walk in love as God does. And God is love, remember? 1 John 4, 7 and 8. You know, dear friends, let us love one another for love is of God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. For God is love. Since God is love and the life that is the life of God means that the imitator will then lead what? If we're going to mimic God, we're going to imitate God, we're going to lead lives of love. And if love is the essence of God's nature, then it's the essential part of our Christian character. Love is intended to be the sphere which the believer lives. And the standard of love is God. And this love of God is shaped and energized by the self-giving love of Jesus on the cross. Verse 2 here, I want you to know, does not camp on God giving or sending his son, Jesus. The Bible tells us that in many other places, but that's not the focus here. Its focus here is on Jesus' death as a sacrifice. Christ gave himself for us on our behalf. As Ernest Caseman stressed, Christ's death for us always covers two ideas, in our place and for our benefit. Here we see the theology of atonement grounded in the love of God. Atonement at one meant with God happens through Jesus' substitution, Jesus' representation, and Jesus' sacrifice. And as in the Old Testament, when sacrifices were offered at the temple, it was a pleasant smell to God because God was pleased with the worship that was being offered. And the image of this text is loud and clear. God is pleased with what Christ's death accomplished. It saves people for eternity, and it inspires people then to follow 
God, to be imitators of God. And the Apostle Paul later uses the same sacrificial language to actually describe the ministry of Christians in the world, what our ministry in the world to God is like. And in Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, and Paul happens to be in prison here at this moment, near the end of his life, and the church at Philippi had sent a financial gift and some other support. We don't know whether it was clothing and garments or whatever things were sent, but they sent him to Paul through a man named Epaphroditus. And verse 18 says this, I have received full payment and am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. You know, if we sacrifice to help this young lady that we heard about today in the moment for missions, go to Ecuador to minister in the way that she's going to get to minister as a nurse, the verse says here, when we do that kind of ministry, that's a pleasing, a fragrant aroma that, that, that goes to God. So it says walk here in Ephesians 5. Does it say walk in the way of a socially divided culture? Or does it say walk in the way of the hostility and partiality of current politics? Or walk in the way of your own personal biases or your own cultural biases? No, it says walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. God's love toward us is expressed in giving. And that's what it means to follow the Father, to do likewise. You know, we sing a chorus from time to time in our church called, Your love, O Lord. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness stretches to the sky. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, and your justice flows like the ocean tide. And then the chorus goes, I will lift my voice to worship you, my king. I will find my strength in the shadow of your wings. And the song goes on and on. It's from Psalm 36, verse 5 through 7. Let me read it for you. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains. Your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. I like the way the late Eugene Peterson paraphrased this section of Scripture in his message uh, version of the Bible. He said, God's love is meteoric. His loyalty, astronomic. His purpose, titanic. His verdict, oceanic. Nothing gets lost. Not a person or a mouse slips through the cracks unnoticed. How exquisite your love, O oh God. And our calling as Christians is to be imitators of this God. How could you not want to follow a God like this? Ephesians 5 verse 1. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. My children. Let's follow our Heavenly Father. Would you pray with me, please? God, our Father, we again are grateful for 
these five weeks that we've been able to spend talking about our perfect heavenly Father. And Lord, today to recognize that the whole goal in all of this, once we've been born twice, is to follow our heavenly Father. Heavenly Father. Our earthly parents. That we imitate them, sometimes maybe even to our own chagrin. And yet there's other times when we almost purposefully don't imitate our Heavenly Father. Lord, I think the challenge is clear to us. Uh, we are loved unconditionally. And Lord, we're, we're, we're inspired through Christ's sacrifice to love as our Heavenly Father does, to love as God does. So Lord, I pray that we can be those people, even in these tumultuous times that we find ourselves living, that we can be the church that can bring honor and glory to your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.